the Astros are both part of a long tradition of sign stealing, uh, but also unique because what they did was enabled by a very unique set of circumstances. And this is where the Cardinals tie come in, honestly. And this is there's definitely a Cardinals undercurrent in this book because so many of the things that were unique about the Astros came from things that Jeff Lunau began to develop intellectually and technologically while he was in St. Louis. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closets by Design of St. Louis. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould, joined this week by good friend, good reporter, and author Andy Martino of SNY, MLB reporter covering the Yankees and MLB, and also author of the forthcoming book, Cheated, about the Houston Astros scandal. Andy, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me, Derek. And I will say, after that nice introduction, I will say to your listeners who may not realize it while they're in the trenches with you on Cardinals news day in and day out, <laughs> but they have, I truly believe this, I've said it before, your readers have the best. If, if not, I don't want to disparage anybody else, so let's say you're up there with the very, very top tier of baseball beat writers in this entire country, and St. Louis readers are very lucky to have you, so it's a pleasure to be on with you. Oh, I really appreciate that. Tony Lewis would always use the tide for first, and you, you were like, okay, but does that mean anyone's second, or is just everybody tied for first, Tony? You'd always wonder to ask, but um, I just, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on because it's so much is happening. Um, you know, I wanted to talk to you about your book, wanted to talk to you about the off season, wanted to talk to you about Yadier Molina's fit for those two teams in New York that you cover and whether that was going to happen. But right away, Francisco Lindor. Are How about we, that? Yeah, yeah. It's the Mets pull off a trade for Carrasco and Lindor with Cleveland. Um, is that the opening act of the mega dollar Mets? Is that what we're seeing? Are, are they putting together what I guess in soccer terms would be called a Galacticos? <laughs> uh, not right away. Look, they. it depends how you view that, I guess, how one views that. There could be a reductive way to look at an offseason among some members of a fan base, of course, not all, which is like you got to sign all the big free agents, flavor of the month. This year it's Bauer, Springer. Uh, trade for Lindor, and, and that's the only way to do it. Sort of like the Padres method that they try every handful of years, uh, just getting everything new and sexy. Uh, what the Mets have already done is spend about $50 million toward next year's payroll. Uh, signed a, a bunch of good players, Trevor May, James McCann. Uh, they traded for Lindor and Carrasco. Uh, so they've done quite a bit. Uh, they might do a little bit more, uh, but there is there may be this perception that uh, the money's no object for the Mets, which is uh, based in the fact that they now have the wealthiest owner in baseball, Steve Cohen's worth about $14 billion. Uh, but money is an object in the sense that uh, they do not plan to immediately cross the luxury tax threshold. So they're getting up. Their payroll's in the 180s right now. The threshold's 210. Uh, so it's not like they're going to do two or three more Lindor-level things this offseason. But uh, the bigger picture answer to your question is that they fully intend to be a Dodgers or Yankees or uh, any one of these high-rolling, big-market teams that can afford to spend the big money when they when they choose. So 
the old Mets probably don't think about extending Lindor in that $300 million range. The new Mets are going to give it a shot. So, so it, it's definitely different around here than it used to be. Are they going to spend now to cover what their farm system can't provide? Because part of what the Dodgers have done is create this like self-refilling roster as well. I mean, they they obviously spend, they spend to keep, and we'll we'll see what they do with like a Corey Sager. But, you know, one of the big things that they have done is they have invested so much money in their minor league system. Um, sometimes it didn't work out. What was it like a quarter of a billion dollars in spending on international free agents that didn't really net a whole lot of, you know, oomph for the team, but they still did it. Um, do you see the Mets doing that to provide sort of a, a stronger foundation so that this isn't just like spend now, see what this team has, and then cycle out somewhat like the Cubs have had to do. Yes, that's a great point. And that's something that I've talked to Mets people about over the past couple months is that they look at the Dodgers just like you just described, Derek, and that the Dodgers don't the Dodgers didn't win the World Series only because they had, you know, Walker, Bueller and, and Cody Bellinger. The Dodgers won the World Series because of the full depth of the roster, the Dodgers will pay players in AAA extraordinary amounts of money for AAA yeah. in order to keep those guys in their farm system. All these under the radar costs uh, that obviously, you know, most people it's inside baseball stuff. Literally most people in the public aren't thinking about what you pay a AAA outfielder, but when you can park a guy in AAA uh, because of that, or when you can waste money on international spendings, or say sign AJ Pollock, who's a good but not great player, and you don't necessarily have a spot for him. But yeah, come on, AJ Pollock, we'll work it out. Little extravagances like that across the board are, are things that the Mets do plan to do, uh, and and they do look at the Dodgers as a model in that specific way. How essential was it to take on Carrasco's contract to get Lindor? Was that what made the deal? Uh, what made the deal? Uh, was their willingness to give up Andres Jimenez, I think, first and foremost, a promising young shortstop who, who had a terrific rookie season, might have a really nice career in front of him. Uh, taking on the Carrasco money didn't hurt, but that wasn't hard for the Mets either because right. they were looking for a rotation piece like that. So I don't think that was a, uh, in any way a challenging part of the negotiation. The Mets were talking to Jake Odorizzi, for example, mm -hmm. similar money to what they're paying Carrasco. In three year in the thirties probably so Carrasco just takes that role that needed rotation help uh, rotation help excuse me anyway uh, so that just kind of worked out for both sides pretty easily. Did you find this kind of like an old school trade? Then I mean, you know, so often you have teams that just really, with the exception of wherever Dave Dombrowski is, that really hold on to the dream of their prospects, mm -hmm. and you don't see this shuttling of money because let's face it, until the previous year, baseball was booming. Um, every team had money to spend. It was just a question of whether or not they would spend all of it or how judicious they would be with what they had to spend. Um, but I think back to like the trades that the Cardinals made where they took on so much salary, whether it was, you know, McGuire is an example or Larry Walker is an example. But the, those trades just don't happen anymore until now. We've seen two of them that are pretty similar in Lindor and Darvish. Yeah, that's a good point. I think right now you have a few teams who are willing to take advantage of the current marketplace of general frugality, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, whether you want to accept owners' claims without seeing their books, that they're you know, 
broke because of the pandemic or, or take those with a grain of salt. Either way, we know how teams are behaving for the most part. Uh, so Steve Cohen didn't lose any money in baseball last year because he didn't own a baseball team. That's an advantage. The Padres mm-hmm. obviously feel like they're in a position where they, they just want to strike. Uh, we keep hearing the Blue Jays are going to be one of those teams, but you know something has to happen before that's actually proven true. Right. Uh, so there are, but th- there are a handful of teams, yeah, that want to operate in that old school way. I think it's, it's a good point. It's a good analogy, uh, and the Mets can take on that money uh, again to to the end of the the they're viewing the uh, uh, the luxury tax number is is a hard line this year, uh, but still they can work up to that point and take on money. I want to ask you about Steve Cohen, but first I want to tell people about our sponsor. Imagine your home totally organized. Closet by Design of St. Louis can help you get organized with 40% off plus an additional 15% off and get free installation. Call 1-800-BY-DESIGN today. That's 1-800-B-Y-D-E-S-I-G-N, 1-800-BY-DESIGN, Closet by Design of St. Louis, the official sponsor of the best podcast in baseball. Andy, tell us a little bit about Steve Cohen and specifically about like he's a fan fan of the Mets obviously billionaire and somewhat he likes to play on Twitter teasing what's going to happen he does uh he's been active on Twitter uh very active on Twitter uh mostly keeping it light there were a couple that were maybe a little bit more interesting like when he when the Padres made the the, the trades yeah, Cohen tweeted that, well, we don't have the pieces to make a trade like that, which, you know, if you're the previous general manager, you might not have loved that. Uh, so he's <laughs> definitely been willing to 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 engage. And I can tell you in New York, it's really working for the fans. For the most part, they really like it uh, so far. I just don't think it's really been tested yet by any kind of reality. Uh, we'll see how he enjoys Twitter, how he uses it and how the fans respond to it uh, during a, you know, six game losing streak uh, in April or May or whatever naturally happens in baseball. He has never been tested uh, in terms of his perception or his own behavior, you know, or feelings by actual baseball games. Uh, So I just think it's all so preliminary. Look, there's a buzz around the Mets right now and Cohen's activity on Twitter is a, is a big part of that. Uh, but look, Brody Van Wagenen's first off season, there was a tremendous buzz around the Mets. Right. He got Robinson Cano. He got Edwin Diaz. It was like, the Mets are back. The Mets are taking over this city. Uh, you know, good luck Yankees. It's a Mets town now. And then they didn't win enough games out of the gate. So it went away. Uh, so I think whatever happens this winter with the Mets, good or bad, is going to be quickly forgotten once the baseball games start, as, as always happens with an off season. I get the sense though, that if, push to it Stephen Cohen could spell the name of his general manager though <laughs> that's a good reference thanks the, um, pay attention that, that, that was I mean Brody went out in a blaze of glory there was a hot mic episode his own owners put out a statement misspelling his name B-R-O-D-Y uh, it was well things are always interesting here and that was right. one of the more recent examples <laughs> how does well let me I want to ask this about Cohen because you know, sometimes seven tenths of perception leads to, you know, the real view of someone. Do you think at all that because Steve Cohen is, you know, obviously so affluent and as you said, the richest owner in baseball, that his moves, especially at this time, regardless of they if they actually go overboard on the payroll or as you you know, as you point out, they're likely going to stay under the luxury cap. 
if the perception is going to fuel conversation of an actual salary cap? Is is Steve Cohen the owner whose reputation might bring that into baseball? Boy, that's a really interesting question. I think that uh, not specifically to that question, which I haven't thought hard about or reported on, but it's a really good one. But to the idea generally about uh, how will he behave and will he be an outlier, an extreme outlier, I do know that there were concerns uh, through everyone involved in the sale that he would not be approved by the other owners, in part because of his business history, which includes significant fines and investigations for insider trading allegations. He was never personally charged, but his fund uh, uh, was penalized significantly. Um, I mean, that was probably some convenience. I mean, it's not like other owners haven't had issues uh, right. with, with all kinds of things. But anyway, that was that was out there as a concern. But the other concern was, is he going to spend like the so-called a drunken sailor? Uh, and I, I do believe that other owners had to be in some way reassured that he would sort of play within the sandbox to a certain extent. Mm that he would be uh, aggressive in trying to help the Mets win, but he would not be just, let me go sign everybody and have a $300, $400 million payroll. He could do whatever he wants cash-wise. He's worth $14 billion, but he's going to behave himself to an extent within those structures. And uh, when the approval process was ongoing and very much uncertain how it was going to go, now Jerry Reinsdorf, was uh, who has been an influential owner for many years, maybe oh, not as so much as he years. used to be. Right, was uh, a very much against Cohen, and was was had a was trying to get a coalition going to vote him down. Uh, during that time period, was when Alders uh, was excuse me was when uh, Cohen announced Sandy Alderson would be mm-hmm. his team president, and that was a, a, a very smart move, in part because. Sandy Alderson's the guy who publicly ripped the A-Rod contract 20 years ago. Sandy Alderson's the guy who is known as uh, fiscally restrained, rational. He's not the guy you pick if you want to go out there and go crazy. If he, I I don't know, I hate to throw this on Dave Dombrowski, but for some reason he's always the first guy that comes to mind when you think of things like this. But like if you're hiring Dombrowski, if you're hiring uh, A.J. Preller, and you're, right. going, you're raising some concerns. But if you're hiring Sandy Alderson, you're signaling to the industry that you're not going to go crazy. You're going to do things that have uh, rationality behind them and make sense. And I, I, I do believe that, the, that that helped to clinch Cohen's approval as a signal to how he would behave. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I think, it, I think it'd be really interesting, not just for what it does for the National League, to have a counterpoint to the Dodgers um, mm-hmm. with the with the wallet to, to smack down on the table. Um, but also what it does in the, in the area you call home with the Yankees. I mean, what the Yankees did for their quick reset was so impressive. And there's a lot of clamor here in St. Louis for why didn't they try to do that? Um, you know, obviously the, the Cardinals are not going to tank. They have said that specifically that they don't think that that's part of their brand. They also don't believe that, you know, I mean, they, they wonder if their fans would have the stomach for like three years of rebuilding. Um, but the Yankees did it with a reset button um, and then have kind of obviously got back up to speed with spending with coal and such. 
Um, but to have another team in that same area competing with them for eyeballs, you know, is, is that, I mean, are you as compelled by that as maybe I am from afar? Yes. And I would reassure Cardinals fans, the Yankees fans are absolutely miserable right now. Uh, so <laughs> the grass is always greener, but yes, they, yeah. To answer your, your main question. Yes. It's fascinating that the Mets got Lindor and the Yankees weren't really playing for him. Uh, right. it, fascinating that the Mets might not be the little brother to the Yankees in the same way uh, in in town going forward. It's always been really like that. In fact, Derek, when I was on the Mets beat, which just happened to be what I was hired to do and was privileged to do, there were times when you were covering a Mets Brewers game in the middle of August when there were 10,000 people there and the Yankees are playing the Red Sox 10 miles away and you're going, why can't I be at the big event? Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it may not be like that anymore. We'll see. It's a new day. Uh, and then, it, but in terms of your, your Cardinals related question about the Yankees reset, uh, where it's at right now is it kind of an interesting place and how it's all going to look with some historical perspective. Because, yeah, Brian Cashman probably did his best work ever for a few years there when he kept the team in wildcard contention and, you know, 82 win team that he designed that could get hot and then snag a wild card like they did in, in 2015 when they weren't even supposed to be winning. Um, yeah. It, they did a, a great job without tanking, but now uh, they're really tightening the belt. They claim to be really affected by the pandemic. Uh, they're not pursuing the rotation upgrades uh, that they need. Uh, they're probably not going to even reunite with one of their own Masahiro Tanaka. They might, but they haven't really been on him yet because of money uh, and well money in the fact, maybe some scouting there too, but you know, sure. They're not spending on guys uh, like they usually do. Uh, and fans are like, what the hell you built this up for all these years. And now we're not going to see it through because of the economy. So that that's kind of where they're at right now, which is pretty interesting. And the Mets are just in a very different mode. So yeah, it creates a, a new dynamic again. Got to play the games. Like I said, in 20, yeah. 2018, it's Brody, it's Cano, it's it's a whole new day for the Mets, and it's all very exciting, and then the Mets didn't play well. So we'll, we'll see what happens. The Yankees have a great front office, a lot of resources, track record of a century or so of excellence. So the Mets still have a lot of catching up to do. Do you think Lindor changes their lineup in such a way, even in the short term, if they're unable to sign him long term, that they vault ahead of the other teams in the NL East? Do they do they close in on the Dodgers or Padres at all? That's interesting. The Braves are really good, right? They're really good, yeah. Uh, and but they're losing Azuna. Yeah, they're Possibly. losing Azuna. Um, Anthopolis has has been really good at obviously finding those guys. He's though you super trust savvy. Him. Yeah, he, it was Donaldson. There was Ozuna. You trust him to sort of figure that out. Yeah, uh, they got the pitching coming. And you know what else? I, I I think it's usually smart to pick against the team that goes far in the playoffs the previous year because primarily the fatigue and the pitching staff. But mm-hmm. that may not be such a factor this year, right? It was such a right. short season uh, that you don't have those innings totals on the pitchers. Uh, are they as good as the Bra- I They're certainly in the conversation. You'd really have to crunch it. Uh, with the Dodgers and the Padres, boy, I mean, the let's see what the Mets do with their bullpen, too, because okay. they still have the budget for a Brad Hand or a Liam Hendricks or something like that. They they brought in uh, Trevor May. 
they have Edwin Diaz, who actually pitched quite well, a bit under the radar last year. Seth Lugo has been one of the best rotation, uh, one of the best relievers in baseball. So um, behind what's a solid but not great rotation after Jacob Degrom, they might end up having one of those really deep bullpens. Uh, in addition, of course, to Lindor, Conforto, uh, Alonzo, Smith. I mean, it's a pretty stacked team. It's always hard to know how you're going to measure up. You know, we've learned we've learned not to predict in this business. Right. <laughs> and we can avoid it. But, yeah, they're right up there. They added McCann as a catcher. Um, right. You know, the Mets were one of the teams that did have some conversations. But, you know, a lot of teams have conversations. It's whether or not it leaps to the level of negotiations or whatever you know, semantics we want to use, but they, they at least reached out to see what it was, what Yadier Molina was looking for. Um, That probably isn't a fit anymore. Right. But are the Yankees still a fit? I know they tendered Sanchez, but it doesn't seem like they're all that eager to have him catch 140 games or a hundred games. Is Molina a fit at all for either New York team at this point? Probably not. Um, I think it comes back to budget for the Yankees and probably playing time. Uh, what like what would forgive me for not memorizing this from your coverage, which I read regularly. But what what what's Molina? What's what's he going to make next year? Realistic. That's a gr- I mean, I don't know if I've I've you haven't missed anything. I mean, I think you know McCann. What was he around ten million? Is that what the AAV for him was? Yes. So I mean, you're looking at that just a shorter term, right? Or somewhere around that. I mean, that's a that's a you know his salary cut in half. So I don't know how yeah. eager. Molina would be to take that, but you you look at what the market is. Um, McCann's a backup catcher for the most part, um, who's now given a starting job. Uh, so you take that into account, but but that's still pretty good AAV when you think about it. And what Molina would be looking for would be a shorter term deal. So I don't know. It, I mean, it seems like the market says he'll make more than ten. Um, is that twelve? Well, is that thirteen? Um, probably laced with incentives. You know, it's possible. If the Yankees sign DJ LeMahieu, which is their sole focus this offseason for $27 yeah. million a year, they, I just cannot fathom how they have that kind of money to spend on a catcher when they already have one in Sanchez, as flawed as he as he is. So I just don't see it money-wise with the Yankees. Uh, if you miss, if they miss out on LeMahieu, then it's a new calculation. Mm-hmm. Um for, but I, I would think they would end up spending that on the rotation help they need. They have a backup catcher in Kyle Higashioka, who Garrett Cole really loves throwing to. Nice, yeah. Uh, and so between between Higashioka and Sanchez and the budget situation, th- that's probably that. So is this is where the there might be an overlap, though, with the Cardinals, though. Is there interest in trading for a pitcher – while alleviating because they they have a pretty populated outfield no yeah. so alleviating some traffic in the outfield by to acquire a pitcher now that i could see uh a trade for a guy like well you have sort of guys with some ceiling like mike talkman who's a fourth outfielder but a good one uh but then you have an aaron hicks who you could yeah. reduce some payroll by trading and who's a, who's a good player uh, and they do need pitching. So, yeah, I think absolutely uh, it came out that the Yankees were had talked to the Pirates about some of their pitching a month or two ago. I, I guarantee you that, that Brian Cashman has had those kinds of conversations about fits like that. We haven't mm-hmm. sniffed, you know, a, a fraction of them. Uh, but one with the Cardinals certainly logically would make sense. And they're not 
the Yankees are far from stupid. They know that they need pitching. They know that they're on a budget. So a trade for a guy who's overperforming his arbitration year salary right now uh, pro- probably would be something that they would look to do. And if you can dump some outfield salary in the process, great. Yeah. Mozellic and Cashman yeah. talk a lot, at least according to, well, I mean, just in past years, they've, they, they have, uh, they, I know Mozellic goes to Cashman because he has a lot of trust in him. I don't know if, if that flourishes into trade talks or that's just industry talk because, you know, both things happen. Um, general managers like reporters have ones they go to, to talk about the industry just to get their feedback. It never turns into trade talks or job offers, but um, I know that Cashman and Mozellic talk at least quite a bit and they, they have struck up that kind of friendship. Tell, can you tell me more about Talkman? Because um, you know, the commitment to Frazier who long seemed to be the kind of guy that the Cardinals wanted to try to add and, and, and did make it attempts to and have acquired a few guys like that. Um, but Talkman, you know, I'm not sure how he fits into that. What Can you tell me more about him as a player and what you think his upside is? Yeah. He briefly did eclipse Frazier on the depth chart. Uh, well, let me let me back up a second. They the Yankees traded for Talkman after scouting him for a while out of the Colorado system. They traded for him at the beginning of the 2019 season. Uh, he he's a terrific defender. Uh, he gives you good at bat. He's an on base guy. He's got a little bit of power. Uh, he, for a guy who had no name recognition, and it was a trade that garnered almost no attention. It was a real victory for in this particular case more their analytics department than their scouting department. It was kind of an analytics find uh, with the style of at-bats that he had and the defense and the information they had on on that. Uh, He had a bit of a down year last year. I think, obviously, for any player, it's very difficult to judge any results for a 60-game season. Uh, But they like his potential. They've gotten a lot of calls on him. Could he be an everyday player is maybe – maybe – we haven't really seen it. Uh, borderline, he, he, he might be a really good fourth outfielder, uh, but he did he did play well enough to earn that playing time over the more heralded Clint Frazier uh, mm-hmm. in 2019. In 2020, Frazier finally did begin to come into his own and I believe established himself as, a, as their left fielder, uh, which means Talkman doesn't have the at-bats with the Yankees. Uh, I, I would think for all the reasons we've discussed, the Yankees would be more interested in trading a guy like Hicks because of the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, unloading some money would be something they would really like to do, but um, talk that that's Talkman and he can be a productive player for a team for sure. in, in some capacity, I, I just, I, the interest, I bring him up um, every so often with Cardinal fans, just because it's like, that's what you look for is, the outfielder who might get squeezed out um, from a team that is looking for pitching just in the same way that the Cardinals once had outfielders not too long ago, I guess it was 12, 14 months ago. And like the Texas Rangers were searching were wondering if that was a match or Tampa Bay comes calling and says, you know, Hey, we, we, we have interest in those outfielders and they end up with Randy Rosarena through those trades. So, you know, it's like the Cardinals are retracing their own steps where they were the team that had the roster um, you know, brimming with outfielders and now might be looking for the team that has that same place. And you could argue that the Yankees are one of them. And another guy in that category who's a much better hitter than Talkman uh, is Miguel Andujar, who has Ooh, yeah. really no position. He's not, he's not a good fielder. Uh, he might be able to become 
a passable left fielder. Uh, he played third base, was second in rookie of the year, got uh, a couple of years ago, got hurt. Um, and he's just been up and down and they haven't found the at-bats and the stats are pretty ugly because he just hasn't been able to establish any kind of routine. Uh, but he has terrific power. Um, if there's a universal DH, somebody who could easily be a team right. everyday DH. So that, that might be a name too. That's interesting. More uh, upside than Talkman. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, Quick aside before I ask you about your book, do do the Mets sneaky have one of the best outfielders around or outfields around? Well, they need a center fielder, I would say, before we go there. Like a Harrison um, Bader type that they tried to trade for maybe a few years ago. But yeah. Yeah, well, there you go. Something like that. They need I mean, Springer had been had been the guy uh yeah. until yesterday that they that we really thought they were gonna sign. And it's still possible, but not likely, I would say, at this point. Michael Conforto is quietly one of the really good really really good player in the league uh the the problem is that brandon nimmo who's currently their center fielder defensively is just far from a center fielder it just doesn't work Hmm. Uh, and then left is interesting for them they've tried to put a bunch of square pegs in the round hole to get good hitters at bats uh dom smith who is also turning into one of the best player better players in the league uh but is a first baseman um, Jeff McNeil, who's been moved around, who's a terrific contact hitter, kind of a poor man's DJ LeMahieu, uh, but not a very poor man's DJ LeMahieu. He's a really good hitter. And then J.D. Davis, who's a lesser player, but also still a good hitter, lesser player than the other two. Uh, so left and center have been really poor defensively as they've tried to get all these guys at bats, but Conforto's really good and right. Uh, they, they need to figure out some things about how they're going to arrange left and center, though. In addition to, like, being able to toggle between the Mets and Yankees in two questions and outline the depth of their outfield just like that in the past 90 seconds, <laughs> you know, which is a crazy part of your beat there at SMY is being able well, to that's the uh, job. Right. Right. No, it's impressive. I, I have a hard enough time keeping track of the 40 man for one team. Um, but that I just asked that because I wanted to show how, how, how nimbly you can move between those two teams and make the point that you've also been writing a book that centers on an even third team, uh, the Houston Astros. Uh, the book is Cheated, the inside story of the Astros scandal and a colorful history of sign stealing. And you put up the cover there on your on your Twitter page. It looks mm-hmm. awesome. It's got a baseball with sort of a Hal eye in it to, to make mm-hmm. the 2001 Space Odyssey reference in it. Um, yeah, which I, they- it's probably dated myself by doing that. Um, mm-hmm. But well, we're we're both pretty old, so it's we're okay. both so old. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how much you know? You dug deep into the Houston Astros sign stealing scandal, which we mm-hmm. don't really need to summarize because everybody in you know in St. Louis and probably listen to it, listen to this podcast, know it well. Um, but you unearthed new things. But you also looked into the history of sign stealing, and and I got the sense too from talking with you and then reading what you've written about what you, your work is that you've broadened it a little bit. You found examples of this, like infiltrating other areas of baseball, other cities in baseball. Yeah. I wanted to put this in context, both in terms of um, the, the climate in baseball over the years that the Astros were cheating and how widespread it was or wasn't. And then just the whole history of this thing, which is, I just find the ethics of cheating and rule bending to be fascinating Uh, I mean, I think steroids are a fascinating topic in kind of a similar way because we both know people who we like in the game 
who just feel like, hey, anything for an edge, whatever. And we know people who we like in the game that are deeply, deeply morally offended by these these things. And it's like trying to figure that out is fascinating. And yeah, there's a lot. This is a real. I mean, I I just can't wait to share the book. I'm I'm like um, champing at the bit as a new you know deadline writer to have to wait months for it to come out. But <laughs> yeah. but. But I mean, it was it was so it was fascinating to dig into that. It was fascinating to dig into the history, which goes back to, um, I mean, the stealing of signs through decoding pitch tipping goes back to 1876 when it became legal to throw a pitch overhand. I wow. mean, Ulysses S. Grant was president, you know, <laughs> and then you just get into all these things over the years with uh, the the 1951. Uh, Giants and Dodgers and how Bobby Thompson had this sign through an elaborate cheating system that was similar to what the Astros did uh, for the fame, that famous shot heard around the world and all these things that existed over time. So what I found was the Astros were both part of a, excuse me, part of a long tradition of sign Mm -hmm. stealing, uh, but also unique because what they did was enabled by a very unique set of circumstances. And this is where the Cardinals tie come in, honestly, and this is de- there's definitely a Cardinals undercurrent in this book because so many of the things that were unique about the Astros came from things that Jeff Lunau began to develop intellectually and technologically while he was in St. Louis. Yeah. And then his unique personality and leadership uh, style uh, fostered an environment where these things were allowed to happen in Houston. Uh, so uh, he really is a figure that made the Astros unique and outliers uh, despite being part of a long tradition. So I, I just, that, I mean, I'm already starting to ramble a little bit because there's so many aspects that are fascinating. So why don't you ask me a specific question? I'll try to focus (laughs) myself. Oh, so, so I see, I I need to ask a better question. I got, okay. No, No, uh, yeah, it's your fault. No, I just, uh, I'm so, you you imagine writing 80,000 words that you think came out pretty good and, yeah. and no one's read them yet hardly i'm just brimming with excitement that's all oh i'm so that i'm excited to hear that that that's fantastic such a good way to put it um you you know with jeff luno um he was brought to st louis um to join the front office here because he had a non-traditional view of baseball um bill dewitt mm-hmm. jr the chairman of the team you know obviously he was at that time Moneyball was a big thing and he's a businessman and he's looking for edges and he went into the business realm to pull out a guy who was going to bring some non-traditional thought to, to major league baseball. I mean, and then the hiring of Sigma Madoff from, um, you know, from NASA who was doing sleep studies there. I mean, just, these were, these were new, fresh eyes focused for success in other realms asked to now scan baseball for edges. Uh, so I, I don't think it should be all that much of a surprise that when, the guardrails came down and he was in charge. He was non-traditional and looking for edges, right? Mm-hmm. Setting that kind of culture there in Houston. Is that kind of what you're describing? There's that. Uh, and that's all well and good. I think the problem, one of the problems with his leadership style that led to some of these, many of these issues, which began in St. Louis, uh, in my reporting, uh, yeah. and of course, you know, I always hate being told about the beats I cover. So step in if I say something that feels off key to you about the Cardinals. But my reporting was, my, my reporting was uh, that 
well, well-intentioned by, by Bill DeWitt to bring in somebody with that different perspective and any company should do that. There was a problem with communication with the Cardinals. Significant. And, and, the, and, and the two of the main culprits were people who had more in common than they probably wanted to believe uh, in Jeff Lunau and Tony La Russa at the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, had, you had two egos. You had two guys who were really confident and, and, and where they were coming from. And Lunau as the newcomer, I think it's fair to say, didn't do the work required to sort of massage his path into this world and be humble. Uh, there are examples uh, like there was a scouting form that the Cardinals used to have, uh, which would have a box at the bottom of it that would just ask the scout, um, acquire or not acquire? Like, should we acquire this player or should we not acquire this player? And they're supposed to like check yes or no. Okay. And Lunau, can I swear on this podcast? No. Okay. Lunau would ask the I mean, colleague, you can, and I'll go back and beep it. Okay. Lunau asked a sympathetic colleague, uh, you know, what the bleep is this? What does this even mean? It's way too simplistic. So they took it off the form, right? Mm-hmm. This is yeah. a stupid question. We're taking this off the, the form, off the scouting report. And the Cardinal scouts are in an uproar. Like, we, wait a minute. You don't want to know if we think you should acquire this player. They felt empowered by this question. Right. They felt included. Stupid. Yeah. Yeah. So, Even though it could be dismissed by the person above them, it was it was actually right. like an olive branch to say, that's hey, right. you're included in this. Now, that one they put back. Uh, yeah. But you'll remember, of course, uh, another another mistake of implementation that Lou now made uh, was when he brought in a sketch artist. <laughs> Great story. Yeah. yeah. So he brings in this guy. I think his name was Michael Witt. Uh, yep. who, who was a sketch artist that Lunau knew who sketched pitchers and had actually had some insight into pitching mechanics, uh, based on his study of the, of the, of the pitching motion. Like he, he had something yeah. valid to contribute, uh, and Lunau brought him in and it's great. I mean, this is great. You listen to people who have something to say, no matter what their background and he predicted a few potential injuries correctly, so Luna started to take him more seriously. But yeah. what does he do? In, he, he calls a meeting where Dave Duncan and Walt Jockety are among the people who are in, in this meeting, who are already probably feeling threatened by this guy's uh, presence in the organization, by the fact that he seemed to have DeWitt's ear, uh, by his perceived ambition, all these things. And he just puts this artist in the front of the room in spring training and has him give his talk. And Jockety's sitting there going, when can I get out of this? I, I got to yeah. go, you know, go watch BP or something. And it's like there was the effort wasn't made to uh, to convince these baseball people why this was valuable. And because of that, uh, the, the value wasn't necessarily there. So these are some of Lunau's early issues. I think that emerge with St. Louis. And then when he becomes a boss in Houston, another thing comes up, which is uh, this extreme pressure that his employees felt to innovate. He would have a meeting at the end of the season where he'd say, what did you come up with this year? What did you come up? What did you come up with? And people felt like, Oh my God, I gotta, I I really have to think of something clever year in and year out or else I'm out of here. There's a whole history with McKinsey, the consulting famous consulting firm that Lunau came from, which yep. is Upper Out. 
right? You either keep getting promoted or you're fired. You either keep coming up with innovative ideas or, or you're out of the company. And that was this kind of mentality. So while uh, Lunau was not involved in the, in the uh, conception of the cheating schemes, he created an environment where people felt like they had to keep pushing boundaries in order to uh, keep their jobs and keep their status with him. So you can sort of see why a couple of young interns and young employees might start to figure out sign stealing. Uh, and yeah. there's a lot more to it than that. But that's a, the culture that Lunau helped create um, and, and, and the values that he contributed. And then the fact that he just didn't communicate necessarily with people enough to understand what was happening, understand, care if it was wrong, uh, care to find out too many details. Uh, so all of these qualities that eventually led his career and his organization in Houston to blow up uh, were sort of nurtured and developed uh, in St. Louis. And then, of course, uh. there's the there's the, the 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 battle between the two organizations that came up in the in the hacking scandal and sure. all that. So there's so much, so much. He he brought so much drama between the Astros and the Cardinals in those years. It's fascinating. The last uh, conversation that I had with Jeff face to face was outside the visitors was inside the visitors clubhouse there in Washington during the 27. Or I'm sorry what 2019 world series. Uh, so outside AJ Hinch's office there in, uh, at, at nationals park. And I was doing a story on whether or not the Astros embraced their role as villain, you know, mm -hmm. like just the swagger, you know, the carrying the bat, just all of it. And I asked, I asked Luna, I said, are you comfortable with the win at all costs culture that you have created whether that's true or just a perception that is becoming true uh he was not happy with that question um, <laughs> i would right i wouldn't think because it was a good one <laughs> yeah, yeah but that's what i asked him i was like are you comfortable with having created a win at all costs uh perception of your culture here and if that culture is true um you know he pushed back on that obviously eventually um but you know he, he and i have had so many conversations through the years, even going back to when I first started on the beat. And one of the early things I covered was the draft, which he was in charge of. So mm -hmm. lots of conversation there, whether it was, you know, in the lobby of a hotel as he walked me through sort of what they were going to do. He and he led us into the draft room once, which was fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Um, so That's we rare were there. Access, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, you know, uh, Sam Walker of the wall street journal was working on a book and had that access. And our point was, you know, he's a reporter for a newspaper. How can you let him in, you know, even though he's working on this book, but not include us. And for, you know, this was a different era, obviously, but that, that, that argument resonated with them. So we got to go in um, with, with the same kind of parameters that, that, that Sam Walker had. And he wrote a great book, um, Fantasyland. And really, um, you know, this was after that book had been published, I believe, or it was in the process of, so good stuff. But, um, but, you know, even going back to the ground control and the similarities between that and Redbird Dog, you know, this, mm -hmm. these 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 conversations that we would have where you would you would know when you asked Luna a question that was a mousetrap that he was quickly going to try to figure out how to snatch the cheese and avoid the trap. <laughs> um, and if he couldn't, 
that he just would then walk away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's He's, I, I mean, obviously such a fascinating guy, somebody who I tried to portray uh, in a balanced way because those people who like him and are loyal to him, like him a lot. Or fiercely, yeah. Fiercely so absolutely. loyal. A lot that of was true are, here. Yeah. A lot of people are still like that. And he's actually not the, uh, it's a quiet technocrat that he seems like he's people love to have a beer with him and he can be yeah. funny. And uh, he's one of the only, I've told you the story privately, but when I met him, when he first took over the Astros and I interviewed him for a story about that, he's probably the only person in a job like that. in in the, in the sport that's ever said, Oh, who are you? Where'd you go to college? What's your background? And it seemed genuine. Maybe he was, manipulating yeah. me, but I, I appreciate it at the time. Uh, so he's obviously interesting and complex uh, and that's the thing about this this thing that the Astros did is that it is complex. And you do have people who found themselves on the wrong side of a moral line in, in various ways uh, for various reasons. And, and I've tried to humanize that. I think, you know, one of the things that drew me to this in the first place was that I thought that A.J. Hinch, Alex Cora, and Carlos Beltran were all, you know, for lack of a better term, good people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people I like people, I, I thought, well, how did you guys get on the wrong side of history for this? It, three, three, three good, smart managers who I, I think are decent people who lost their jobs because of this scandal. How does that happen? You know, people are complex and they get themselves in these complex scenarios. Luno is on, on one end of this. Uh, the managers are on another, the players are on another. Uh, George Springer's a, a great young man in many, many ways, overcame his stutter. Carlos Beltran fought for players' rights and does so much for Puerto Rico. Uh, Alex Cora has helped so many people behind the scenes uh, that we've never heard about, teammates. Uh, he mentored Dustin yeah. Pedroia with the Red Sox when they were both, you know, when, when Pedroia was trying to take his job. I mean, these people have all done good things, and then they did this bad thing. How does that happen, you know? Yeah, I mean, that that how did you wrestle with that, and did you come to uh, a neat and tidy conclusion in your book then about about, about the complexity of human nature i did i figured it out because <laughs> all of it <laughs> that's why i have to buy the book no yeah. I, I, i've got the the answers on page 289 that's, that's uh, no, hard that's good writing yeah i think i think no i tried not to come to a conclusion is my yeah. earnest answer i tried to just present it all uh and i tried to write it in a really straightforward way where i'm not doing very much editorializing if any i hope um just sort of saying, here's what happened and un- and trying to understand these people. And I think the answer is a little different for all of them. I mean, to summarize the people that I just got into, I think that uh, Hinch uh, was traumatized by a horrible experience where there was a veteran mutiny against him when he was a young manager in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And as a result, was reluctant to speak up uh, and distru- disturb the peace in Houston. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think that Beltran and Cora were these baseball brainiacs who had learned the arts of uh, picking up on pitch tipping and legal sign stealing from guys from a previous generation, like Carlos Delgado, uh, Sean Green, Jim Evans. They know, so they know how to like look at a pitcher and know by the, uh, a small flare of the glove that we wouldn't see what he's going to yeah. throw. And Ryan Franklin when, is really good at that too. Yeah, there's right. There's these classic guys that are really good at it. Cora yeah. and Beltran were among the best. 
Yep. And now technology progresses to the point where you can see that on a TV monitor and they're not going to look, you know, right, <laughs> so right. it, it, there's a lot to it. But I think simply put, you can drift into these. And I tried, it was really important to me to write it without judgment because you can, you can look at you, you can, you can see how you yourself might accidentally drift into an unethical situation if you weren't really, really careful or, or didn't interesting. see it. I mean, to elaborate for a moment on, on the pitch tipping thing, it literally comes from, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different lineages of this, who learns it from who, but so Cito Gaston, the former manager of the Blue Jays, yeah, uh, yeah. played in the, played for the Padres and the Braves in, in the sixties and the early seventies was a master of picking up on tipping and sign feeling from second base as a player. He's a manager of the Blue Jays in the early nineties, Delgado and green, uh, are rookies on, on one of those teams where Cito Gaston, Roberto Alomar, and Joe Carter are like running the team. And they're like, hey, kid, you have to learn how to do this. It's a requirement. If you want to be a Blue Jay, you got to learn how to pick signs from second base. So, Bel- so uh, Delgado and Green learn it. Flash forward 15 years of 2007, they're on the Mets with Beltron and Cora, right? Yeah. These guys yeah. already have an aptitude for it. Uh, but Green and Delgado take them that much further. All this is legal. They're just watching what they're seeing on the field, of course. Um, but again, then these guys get to the Astros in a different world of technology, and they have all these tools. And, man, the self con- – I'm not excusing them, but the self-control that it would have taken to not push it yeah, yeah. Uh, is part of what's interesting here to me. That's amazing. You got me – so so the Cardinals have long had guys who are, who are good at – reading tells from pitchers the flare of the glove mm-hmm. um whatever jim edmonds is one of the best where he could stand in and live bp and tell a guy what he was about to throw and he and ryan franklin and a few other guys would be asked to watch live bp by dave duncan or tony Larusa or somebody ask them specifically to do this and it's still a tradition that, that continues on flaherty and all these guys will do it because they learned it from Wainwright and Wainwright learned it from these other guys. And what they're looking for is tells tips, you know, flare the glove positioning, where you start your hands, how you do this. Are you showing to second base? Are you showing to the hitter? What, what your grip is going to be by even like the incremental things. It is remarkable to watch how quickly like a Ryan Franklin or Jim Edmonds could decode that. And Edmonds does some of it now, even um, as a guest instructor, a broadcaster, with the Cardinals, he'll do he'll do it on broadcast. He will tell he's he's done a game where um, oh gosh, I can't remember who it was. He was broadcasting a game and he was able to tell the pitch that the opponent was about to throw every time, just every time. And he knew it. Um, and you think about that and I think about how they'll drag the young guy or the veteran who has the tell into the room to watch the video. Right. So. There's the two elements you're talking about. Like Adam Wainwright will go to Austin Gomer and say, hey, I know when you're throwing your changeup or I know when you're throwing your curveball because of this. Let me show you on the video. Or you got Jim Edmonds, who's in the broadcast booth watching the game saying, I know what pitch is coming. I could shout it from the press box before he throws it, right. um, but I'm not. So it's like they were already there at the tip of the diving board because of this technology exactly. because they're looking for it. They just didn't make the leap. Right. And so – um, you know, as TV kind of builds over half a century or more and broadcast yeah. advances in the game, you just have more and more opportunity. Um, there was 
there was a camera that was introduced. I think it was an all-star game in the late 50s uh, where you could see the catcher's hands. And I think it was Phil Rizzuto broadcasting the all-star game who was able to start telling which pitches were being thrown. And Ford Frick was the commissioner at the time, and he freaked out. He said, we're not using that camera anymore. We can't have this. But, of course, you can't put a lid on technology once it's out of the box. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> teams are relying on broadcast feeds for a while now. For decades, the uh, the White Sox in the 80s uh, had a, a light bulb in the scoreboard uh, that would flash on a certain pitch when they could see it from the broadcast. They had a whole thing rigged up. And there are plenty of other examples. Uh, but this is all reliant on uh, having the TV crew shoot the catcher on a given pitch, which a team obviously doesn't control. A team doesn't work with the cameraman. That's a right. Uh, that's for the broadcast truck to do. Even if it's a team-owned network, there's not that kind of coordination. So what happens, of course, with the advent of the instant replay room in, is it just within this past decade is that now you have guys that are, like as you said, at the tip of that diving board. I mean, if Edmonds had still been playing, all of a sudden you've got these live video feeds galore and your replay guy can choose which angle to pick. And you've got mm-hmm. high-speed cameras. Uh, you that are supposed to help with your grip as a pitcher, your swing as a hitter that all of a sudden now offer a view of the catcher on demand and all these tools that guys are just naturally gonna, gonna use. And, and it was, you mentioned this earlier, Derek, it was widespread to an extent. A lot of the league was in a gray area. Right. And there were investigations into other teams, the Yankees, the Brewers, uh, the Dodgers, uh, plenty of teams were accused of doing these things. Um, because there are a lot of guys in the league that are good at this, and then they had the technology. But the Astros just had this unique culture to push it a little further with uh, Lunau being uh, having uh, applying the pressure to innovate, Hinch being uh, being sort of programmed to not speak up when he saw something wrong, yeah. uh, and then Cora and Beltron there at the same time who were really good at this. So there's just so many things that came together to put them in a in a in a league of their own with 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 this type of cheating. Wow. What you, uh, I wanted to ask you about to the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, that brewers having had some, let's say memorable experiences and exchanges there at Miller park um, for both sides of the, of the Cardinal brewers rivalry, especially as it peaked there um, from changing the light on the ribbon board, whether that was intentional or accidental um, or whatnot, but what was it that the, Brewers, to the extent that you can, you're comfortable saying in your book, were investigated. I'll tell you what. I will say I, this is a, the specifics of this. I'll save until closer to when the book comes out, probably just because I might be on a line where, you know, maybe I should do that. But I, yeah, I'll no, just I appreciate I'll that. say that the um, there's an incident in the book where the Brewers uh, were investigated and all, by MLB uh, for electronic sign stealing uh, cleared. Uh, by MLB, uh, but the team that made the accusation had some pretty specific accusations, but they MLB looked into them and, and didn't find enough to finalize. Uh, yeah. Can't wait to look at that. Okay, so uh, to the last thing I want to ask you about this, and you, it, it's been the names that have been kind of sprinkled throughout your explanation, is and it has to do with a guy that you and I both know well. Um, Hinch is back in the game. He's a manager. Cora is back where he began. I mean, he's back in the same team as a manager. Carlos Beltran is not. Yeah. What is, 
what is his future with baseball and when does he get that same opportunity that Hinch and Cora now have? I think it's complicated for him for a couple of reasons. The most obvious is that he didn't win a World Series like the other two did. The timing was just worse for him to lose a job. He never managed a game, right? It was already a bit of a leap by the Mets right. to hire him as their manager when he hadn't managed or coached in any level. Uh, so now if you're a team looking for a manager now, you think, well, Corey and Inch have championship pedigree and Beltran doesn't as a manager. So that doesn't help him. And then there's the fact that in some ways he just hasn't been as politically uh, savvy in the game over the over decades as the other two maybe have been in that. Look, there are a lot, a lot of people love Carlos Beltran in this game. And a lot of people felt that he's gotten a raw deal. Uh, and some of the reasons that have been mentioned go all the way back to, uh, if you remember, when he was a young player with the Kansas City Royals, mm-hmm. uh, the, he was injured. The Royals wanted him to rehab uh, in Florida, at where they trained at the time, the Royals. Uh, he wanted to rehab with the team in Kansas City. He and Scott Boris, his agent at the time, fought it. Uh, and from then on, players have been emboldened, felt emboldened to re- fight to rehab where they want to rehab. Uh, unsubstantiated. But this tells you about how people some say feel about Beltron. A friend of Beltron had suggested to me in the reporting of this, like, well, I wonder if people in the league are still pissed off that he uh, did that, you know? <laughs> and, mm. and it sort of began a process of him challenging management when he wanted to. He wow. went to war with the Mets in 2009 uh, after the 2009 season over knee surgery that he wanted to have and the team didn't want him to have. And, and there was a terrible relationship there for many years with him and the Mets front office. Uh, because of that, uh, he's been an unbelievable advocate for players, uh, but that in, and included Beltron's responsible for the rule as much as anyone else for getting teams to hire translators. So yeah. he made teams create a new salaried position because of his advocacy. But a uh, good one. like a, a, Of course it was a good one. And I'm not saying that I have evidence that these things are hurting him, but yeah. you know this industry. I do, uh, yeah. and it's a it's a small circle. It's a closed circle. It's a conservative one, and Beltron has been uh, an advocate for players' rights for a long time, and that doesn't always help you with with uh, getting jobs. I can totally see how the things that would make reporters like us champion his cause would be something yeah. that somebody would use. I could see that. Yeah. yeah so I, that that's speculated to be uh, part of it, and you know, also to again to be fair. Uh, he he never managed. Uh, I liked the hire at the time uh, because I w- believe in the person. Uh, yeah. But I didn't know if he would be a good in-game manager. And you know Beltron very well uh, personally, and and I think I know him pretty well myself. And there are times when he becomes very uh, introverted. Yeah. And yeah. you, I did wonder how that would play. Um, and the way this year played out, I mean, the manager of a baseball team was talking about a pandemic, uh, often was talking about racial unrest and things that I don't know how much Beltran would have wanted to share on things like that publicly. He's an incredible baseball guy. Um, and unfortunately, I think I could, I, my reporting is what happened to him after he lost his job with the Mets is he sort of, I think, withdrew back into that introverted 
place that he had grown out of um, mm-hmm. because of you know what had happened. And you know he he had he was such a quiet, serious person through much of his playing career, and came out of his shell. You know, interestingly enough, Derek when he went to St. Louis, I think was the real transformative time for him as a person, where he just kind of started to think, you know what, forget it. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to enjoy the game. I'm going to talk to more people. I'm going to smile more. He could be difficult to cover as a Met player. Always respectful, but surly at times. When I talked to him as a Cardinal, you know, I always covered the playoff runs that the Cardinals were in those years. And then other various, you know, games. He was was like smiling and chatty and bubbly. I'm like, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. Uh, he poured champagne all over my head in Washington after that game, that incredible game where the Cardinals came back. <laughs> they rallied. Yeah. I, w- I come in to cover it, and he just like sla- giggling and pouring a bottle of cold champagne on my head. I'm like, who is this person? Yeah. <laughs> it was like, uh, he gets to the Yankees. He's he's that much more that way. Um, he's just really he had come come into his own as a person who felt comfortable sharing more of himself. And unfortunately, uh, just as he was so excited to to further that and manage a team, uh, this thing happened of his own doing, obviously. But uh, I, I think he really did kind of retreat back into himself, at least for the time being, and didn't even put himself out there to try to get a job. The next time that there's somewhat of a, this is probably a clunky word to use, but it's true, a referendum mm-hmm. is this going to be when his name is on the ballot. And yeah. not, you know, and that it's not going to be a decision that's made in the front office by somebody who should hire him or a team that should, you know, he doesn't have to be a manager. He could be a coach. I mean, the guy is one of the smartest baseball and most devoted baseball guys I know. Um, but it sure seems like it's tracking in a way that, that you know, it, again, it's a clunky comparison, but maybe the Mark McGuire was where the first referendum is his name on a on the Hall of Fame ballot and writers have to deal with it. And then a few years later, there's this grand return um, of Carlos Beltran as a coach with some team. I mean, there, there's just no doubt that he could help a team as a hitting coach or, or a assistant hitting coach or something. He, not only is he so knowledgeable about the game, but he's so passionate about helping people. I actually had a yeah. conversation with him when he was interviewing for the, um, the Mets job. He was a Yankees official at that time, and he was traveling with the Yankees for right. their playoff run in 2019. And I was standing with him, with Beltran on the field where the Yankees were taking BP in Houston, funnily enough. None of this, you know, we didn't know it was about to blow up the following month. But I I said to him, you know, forgive me, sort of like, forgive my bluntness, but, you know, I I didn't say it exactly like this, but basically, like, you're filthy rich, you have a beautiful family, you have a cakey, easy job with the Yankees. Why in the world would you want to do this? We want to manage a baseball team. Are you nuts? You know, basically. Yeah. And he goes, hey, brother, I want to help these kids. I really do. And and that's, you know him. That's genuine in his case. Yeah. That yeah. was, this was not an on the record interview. This was a personal conversation. Uh, so he does have so much to offer. Um, and that's another one of the complexities here, really, is that it was in teaching that he got himself into trouble. Because he's like, here's how you pick a sign from the pitcher. Uh, he's like, yeah. see the flare of his glove, see the roll of his tongue, whatever it may be. And then he's like, oh, see it on the video. And then yeah. you know, a month later, there's a trash can there. You see how it evolves. Well, I can't, I can't wait to read that kind of unfurl and and as you unspool, um, sort of the uh, 
the unintended consequences that led to very intended cheating um, yeah. in your book. Uh, you know, cheated by Andy Martino. It's cheated the inside story of the Astro scandal and a colorful history of sign stealing. It drops on June 8th. You do have to wait quite a bit. June 8th, I know, 2021. It's terrible. Oh, I my can't God. wait. I hope I hope that the uh, maybe the Cardinals will be in New York. I can pick up the book, have you sign it in person um, or hold it to you, put it on a table and then have you walk to the table to sign in. Or no, we'll all, we'll we'll be able to be in the same place by hopefully. then. God hopefully. willing. Hopefully, hopefully by then. Um, but it's available now for pre-order on Amazon. That's cheated. The inside story, of the Astro scandal, a colorful history of signs stealing Andy Martino, who covers the Yanks and Mets as the MLB reporter for SNY. This has been a great conversation, and I, I just would be remiss because I know how plugged in you are with the direction the union and the direction Major League Baseball might be going. So I just wanted to close on this really easy um, question for you, Andy. Uh, <laughs> what? How do you view the next few months um, in regards to how the 2021 season might shape? Are you bullish on it starting on time at 162 games? Are you... You know, do you approach it with trepidation? Um, what What's your feel right now at this point? Well, I think you'd probably agree it's with okay me. It's okay to say I don't know. Yeah, well, I don't know. And I think I was going to say, I think you'd probably agree that nobody knows. But if we were to use our experience of covering the dynamic between the union and the league, which is obviously very toxic uh, lately, yeah. um, a logical thing to do would be for them to put their heads together and say, Let's see if we can't get vaccinated by Memorial Day. Start the season. Maybe lob off, you know, a couple dozen games or something. But basically play, you know, way more than 60. End a little late. You know, have fans in the stands. There's a logical way to approach this. But Manfred's group and Clark's group aren't, don't seem capable of having that conversation. Uh, Leading me to believe that they'll probably start on time unless the pandemic gets so bad again that the government has to tell them not to. Um, So they start on time with, with no fans in most places Uh and hopefully uh, build up to more fans in the stands by, uh, you know, the end of the season. And unfortunately, I think that means we're going to see more of like, ah, three Cardinals are positive. I guess uh, they're supposed to play the Brewers, but I guess the Brewers are going to play the Orioles today because the Orioles are over Uh, in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I I don't see why it wouldn't be like that. I mean, the pandemic's still a thing. So, yeah. Is it uh, wrong that as you said that, the hair on the back of my neck stood up as if I no, needed to cancel the podcast and go right? It's it's one thing to live this as a, as a horrible novelty in, in 2020. It's just exhausting to contemplate doing it again for everybody involved. Uh, but here we are. I'm going to do the Colombo thing on you because something that you just said, and I mean, I appreciate our conversation so much. And, and I'm, this is a, a good question to ask on the podcast to close with. So it's my one more thing, Colombo mm-hmm. in working on this book, which is called cheated and basically tries to draw that line in the gray area between what is ethical in the game and what is finding an edge and what is overstepping it. And I have two questions about this. The first one is, did you find more fascination in baseball? Did you become a bigger fan of baseball by exploring that gray area? Oh, man. Great question. And a resounding yes. 
the this is part of why I'm so personally enthusiastic about the project is that it afforded me the opportunity to learn about things that from the press box we normally don't have access to. Um, so like the I I just learned so much about this game that we watch day in and day out and and became you know how it is when when people ask us oh, if you're not a fan of a team anymore, how can you love the game? It's because you learn so much more about it through our access to it. And there's a joy in that. And this was like that exponentially. I mean, to the point where I'm watching the playoffs uh, this year, uh, texting with one of my sources on the book who is very knowledgeable about sign stealing. Uh, I'm watching the Rays Astro series this year. And I text my source, am I crazy or um, are the Rays... Uh, changing signs with nobody on base, going to different sequences. I'm seeing things in the catcher's hand that I never would have noticed in my entire life if I hadn't recorded this book. And the guy tells me, yes, they are. So from that, I find out, oh, 2020, October 2020, teams are still guarding against the Astros. You know, better safe than sorry uh, uh, mentality. But, like, think about – so now I can watch a baseball game and see that, and that's – that's obviously nerding out on a thing that we like to a, a pretty minute level, but um, yeah, the, the conversations I was able to have, the, the the contacts that I was able to, you know, the people that we know in the game, now I can take, like I work with the former Cardinal Todd Zeal at SMY, which is mm-hmm. great day in and day out. But when I can say like, hey, did you ever this or did you ever that? And you can be like, oh yeah, there was a time when, just to be able to learn that stuff, Derek, is such a joy as you, as you can imagine. Yeah, that was one of, of the many things I learned from covering Mike Matheny as a player, then as a manager or getting to cover the entirety now of Yadier Molina's career with the Cardinals, wherever this goes, um, you know, I've learned, you know, I, I mean, I learned to watch, like I could see how he would shift. I, I mean, I remember the day he stopped giving signs entirely mm-hmm. and then watched him improvise ways to do um, signs that like the pirates couldn't even, they couldn't fathom. They were mm-hmm. like, what well, is just stopped. Um, you know, just being aware of that. So that brings me to the final question. I promise this is the final question. As someone who had that fandom invigorated in ways um, for a sport that you and I both adore, mm-hmm. how worried are you about 2022 when the country hopefully emerges from this, the virus, the pandemic, um, people look for entertainment again, and the reality is the baseball might not be there because of a work stoppage is, is baseball really at a delicate point? I think it is. I think, you know, I, I'm a worrier in part because we, we support ourselves and our families with this, by covering this industry. So we would like it to exist. Um, so take it with a grain of salt. Cause I'm a worrier, but I worry about all live sports. I worry that we've broken mm-hmm. the habit as a culture through this pandemic of, of watching them in the same way. Wow. We've seen the ratings down. I think it was already on track to do that. I know that young people who like sports often like YouTube clips of the sport, or I worry that um, the NBA is now popular, not so much because of the games, but because of the celebrities who play it and the social media memes that people make about the NBA or, you know, like the, I don't know how I worry about, I worry that live sports are a 20th century phenomenon that are winding wow. down um, wow. and that baseball will ex- could accelerate its own, um, you know, part of that uh, by having these labor issues that I don't think people have a lot of patience for. Uh, I hope I'm just wrong, uh, point. but, but I do worry about it. Yeah. 
So let's hope that we have something to celebrate and that 2021 offers maybe like the book did for you that it can reinvigorate interest in baseball by by being there by being there when people are looking for some kind of normalcy or comfort Um, baseball can more than any sport really bring a community together because of its constants you know Mm -hmm. it's just always there Mm -hmm. um and it has to but it has to be willing to always be there to make that work uh yeah it can be the tie that binds but it can also unravel pretty quick that's right it's a, I, I think that's probably to end on a slightly more optimistic note than yeah. <laughs> i just took you i think that that's probably a good thought for anything that we value whether it's our family our relationships our job sport that we love appreciate it like it might go away someday right yeah that's probably a good way to to regard something anyway and baseball needs to to give to its fans yeah you know yes. to make sure that doesn't happen yeah that's Andy Martino, author of Cheated, book that drops in June. It's about the Houston Astros uh, sign-stealing scandal, but it's about much more. It's also about uh, an inside part of baseball, um, a glimpse into the catcher's signs and how people have gone to great lengths to steal them. And he also covers the Yankees and the Mets for SNY there in New York. He's their MLB reporter. The best podcast in baseball is brought to you by Closet by Design of St. Louis. Get organized with Closet by Design of St. Louis. Update your closets, garage, office, pantry, and more. Call 1-800-BY-DESIGN, 1-800-BY-D-E-S-I-G-N. Closet by Design of St. Louis. The best podcast in baseball is available wherever you get your podcast. You can also read all of the Cardinals coverage at stltoday.com and find a host of other podcasts there, including Eye on the Tigers, about Mizzou by Dave Matter and Ben Fredrickson. The best podcast in baseball is brought to you weekly here in 2021. This is the first episode, Andy, of 2021. Did something like 43 episodes last year. So somebody pointed out that it was almost as many episodes as the Cardinals played games. I'm hoping that that, I mean, that doesn't happen this year. But it, it has been great. Very much appreciated. Hope you've had a happy new year and congratulations on the book. I'll get to say that in the uh, in six months from now too. And we'll, this is a great conversation that Andy, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. Really fun.